This is Wessler Media. The Wrath of the Buzzard. WMMS Cleveland. Welcome for a final time to a bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzard. I am your host, Vince Tornero, along with John Gorman, former operations manager, and Denny Sanders, former air talent. And uh, you did a ton of stuff behind the scenes. So, I mean, the kind of being an air talent is, uh, you know, the main thrust of it, but uh, you did a lot. So thanks, guys, for hanging around and uh, doing some bonus content with us. My pleasure. All right. So, uh, John, episode five, you talk about the switch where you recorded music <laughs> From record reps, <laughs> you were uh, recording albums like Fleetwood Mac would come in, their rep would come in and play a song, you'd get the whole song, and that's how you guys would get these advanced copies. Know, well, that was, that was something, exclusives became uh, <clears throat> a trademark of WMS. Uh, it was expected. You know, the record guys used to come in, they'd come in my office and say, hey, we want to play you the new, you know, so-and-so. I can't give it to you yet, but I want you to hear the new tune. Their job is to then go back to their boss and say, yeah, he really likes it. He's going to play it as soon as it comes out. Well, yeah, he's going to play it long before it comes out. <laughs> Frank Foote was our chief engineer at the time, and I asked him one time, is there a way that if one of these record guys is playing something, when I put it on the turntable, that I can flick a switch and it starts a tape machine in production? And sure enough, Frank came up with it. You know, this went on for a year. Let me, <laughs> let me tell the Michael Rose story. <laughs> okay. Michael Rose was a good friend of John and a good yeah. friend of all of us. And he was a record promo guy. And uh, John somehow got a hold of the new Eric Clapton album. Michael Rose had no idea that John got a hold of it through some other means. Well, all the other radio stations thought that Michael, being a friend of John, gave him the record and he couldn't talk him out of it. Couldn't convince them otherwise that he had nothing to do with it. All the other stations said, of course you did. You were friends with John Gorman. I, I know you gave him. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Well, one day, and I'm in John's office, and uh, Michael Rose storms in. And Michael was a portly fellow, and John nicknamed him the elephant. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, it was an affectionate term. It wasn't anything mean. Yeah. And uh, he storms right past Rhonda Kiefer, who's the executive secretary, and uh, storms right into the office. And I'm in there with John. We're talking about something. Michael Rose storms in. You, you, where did you get that record? Now, you know what happened? I, I had to drive every station in town and give it, I had to convince them I had nothing to do with this. Now, through this whole thing, John is eating peanuts out of a planter's peanuts cocktail peanut can. <laughs> and he's just munching on the peanuts, you know, and Michael Rose is, and, you know, you know the trouble you caused me and blah, 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 blah. And then he says, and what have you got to say for yourself? Nothing. Sitting there eating peanuts. And John holds the can out to him and goes, peanuts for the elephant. And <laughs> Michael Rose goes berserk, <laughs> screams and storms out of the office and is banging on the walls on the way out the door. <laughs> Do you remember I that? I forgot about that. Yeah, I remember it now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. So did you did you get why why did the switch stop? Was it out of necessity or you just didn't need to do it anymore? Oh no, it it it, it, it never really stopped. Okay. It it never really stopped. Just kind of maybe just, faded out. Yeah, and well, the record guys stopped coming in to play advanced copies. 
Because they got suspicious of yeah. you. Yeah. Like, not all of them got suspicious, but a lot of them did. But then, you know, what we simply, we had so many other ways of getting exclusives. Some of the uh, national record executives would gladly give John the record. Sometimes I get him legitimately. Wow. Yeah, wow. and they would say, now, don't tell anybody I yeah. gave this to you. You know, I remember one day I had to go to the airport. Somebody bought a seat on a plane with the new Tusk album by Fleetwood Mac. And I spent like two or three hours trying to find this package. <laughs> wow. But it was the Tusk album. Nobody else had it. And uh, But, I mean, they, there were all sorts of uh, skullduggery that went on getting this, these, these exclusives. WMMS. Coming to theaters everywhere. The most devastating horror movie of our time. So realistic, it's shocking. So shocking, it's unreal. It's horrible. SGM Pictures presents No Parking. George, I, I can't seem to find a parking place anywhere. I don't think there are any left. No Parking. I've been driving around the block for three days. No Parking. General panic and chaos crippled a nation on the day all the parking spaces were filled in the most chilling thriller ever to hit the screen. No parking. Starts Wednesday at the Plaza One Mini Cine with plenty of free parking. More high octane rock and roll from MMS. Denny, um, I want to know a little bit about the interview that you did uh, with Bob Seger. This seemed to be the Night Moves tour in 77. I think that's that's according to the research that I have. Uh, he was really starting to take off. So tell me about a little bit of, little bit of the background with, uh, with Bob Seger here. Well, I was always an early supporter of Bob Seger. I, I always thought he was uh, very underrated. And although he was big in Michigan and some other areas in the Midwest, he was not a national star yet. And uh, when the Live Bullet album came out, we did an interview, and he revealed that that was sort of an accident how that happened. Uh, somebody had a 16-track machine and uh, offered to record the show. This was not supposed to be for an album. This was really more of a souvenir or a reference recording for the band. And it turned out that their performance was so good and so hot that Capitol decided to put it out as a double record set, not just a single record, double record set. And it turned out it put him on the map. And that interview is where he revealed that that uh, recording was never really meant to be an album release. Fantastic. Here's Denny's interview with Bob Seger. Okay. Tape rolling. <clears throat> oh, I got to go to the bathroom. Oh, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> Uh, a comedian. All right, hold up. Here we go. We're WMMS in Cleveland. I'm Denny Sanders, and uh, stopping by the studio here for a couple of minutes just before he goes on stage up at Public Hall tonight is an old friend, Bob Seeger. Bob, how you doing? Just fine. It's nice of you to stop by, take a couple of minutes out, come by the uh, the new studios here. Is this yes. neat? Rather nice. Rather nice. Yes. I want to talk about your recent success. Uh, I guess this is a, a, a loaded question. How does it feel after being on the road for... 
How long were you playing on the road before the real breakthrough happened? Oh, I'd say about uh, really nationally and touring outside of Michigan in the Midwest, I'd say about uh, 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. And an average of how many nights a, uh, a year? Well, we did the the big year that we did was about two hundred and sixty one. That was in seventy five. That was, but uh, we used to work two hundred, two hundred and fifty gigs a year. Yeah. How do you do it? Two hundred, two hundred and fifty, like mostly one night stands mm-hmm. too in different cities. Being somewhere Thursday and being next next uh, town on Friday. That's what is. How do you how does your system do it? I mean, I've seen a lot of bands just crumble uh, <clears throat> from trying to do all that work. Well, at at the time, it was like a lifestyle because uh, it was like making a living, really, is what yeah. it was, because the records weren't happening all that much. You know, we really weren't making any money from the records that we had out, so we had to support ourselves from live gigs. Yeah. And we all took a salary each week, you know, 150 uh-huh. bucks, something like that, and, and we lived on it. It was know? security, huh? Yeah. yeah. We, we lived on like $7,500 a year, and then we paid our taxes and usually got some back. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was just something that we enjoyed doing more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't another occupation uh, I wanted, so uh, just continued at it, hoping that I would get lucky someday. Yeah, that's how it is in the entertainment business. You know, you you have a drive to do something, and even if you're not being paid, you'll you'll stand on the roof of your car in a parking lot, you know, and play to some people. That's really? that's your really? that's your bag. Uh, the live album was the breakthrough album. Can you tell me something about that? How did that how did that come together? Was that uh, a spur of the moment thing or what? It really was. Like about three or four days before uh, we did the, we did the two shows of Kobo, our, our fella called up from a from an audio studio or a mobile studio i should say and midwestern audio and he said you know i'll give you a good price i want to you know i want to do 16 track of your two concerts and and they were the you know probably two of the most important concerts we'd ever done our first really really big shows sold out at in detroit you know uh seats per night and at first i was negative towards it because i didn't want anybody you know in the band um sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I just didn't want him thinking about the tape. I wanted him worrying about the audience, you know, and mm-hmm. you know, forget about the tape. But after I thought about it, I said, well, why not? You know, if nothing else, it'll be a nice souvenir, and we can mix it down. We can have it at home. Right, know? and if it doesn't come out that well, you can just have it for yourself. Right, we, at least we've got a, a you know, it's, this is like an epic event for us, the first time we've ever done Kobo, two nights sold out. Yeah. And uh, we've been here a long time, and it'd be fun to have as a souvenir. Yeah. So we went out and we played, and I think you can sort of hear that there's, there's a bit of desperation in the album, you know, because we wanted so bad to please all our friends yeah. and the families and everything else that was, you know, in the people of our hometown. But uh, what what finally really occurred was that we had Night Moves just about ready to release. At and, the same uh, time? At the same time. Well, this was about six months after we actually cut the live album, or, or, or did the tapes, I should say. And we had Night Moves uh, was about three songs shy of its final, you know, of its final order of what finally came to pass on the album. And uh, we were getting a little stuck on it, you know, as as happens when you work on an album. You, know, you couldn't quite seem to, to finish it to everybody's satisfaction. So we decided to take a week off and just mix the live tapes mm-hmm. and just kind of change our perspective. We'd been working in the studio for about a month on Night Moves. And we went and we did it, and it was all so fresh to us, we decided, hey, why don't we put this out at a special price, which we did, a double album set at a half price, and um, 
we can buy us a couple of months to get night moves the way we want it. The pressure will be off, and we can get back into it slowly. And lo and behold, when we released it, you know, just off the bat, it's been on the charts ever since it was released. This is a year and about five weeks. So this later. live album that was really done off the cuff really, really turned out to be the thing that did it. That's yeah. amazing. Let's it, hear a little. Let's hear a little something from the live album. If that's okay. cool. what, what cut? What cut do you think typifies the night on that live album? Oh, I think there's any, any one of three. You can you can choose it. Uh, uh, Nutbush, Traveling Man, Beautiful Loser, or Turn the Page. All right, I tell you what, let's do uh, let's do Nutbush, okay? Okay. All right, here's Bob Seger in the Silver Bullet Band. That's Bob Seger in the Silver Bullet Band from the live Bullet album, and we're WMMS in Cleveland. And stopping by here uh, for just a second before he goes on stage at Public Hall tonight is Bob Seger. And Bob, let's rap a little bit about the, the song Night Moves, uh, uh, such a real popular tune that everybody knows. Is that, uh, is that semi-autobiographical? There are two tunes on that album that I sort of hear as being part of your life, Night Moves itself and uh, rock and roll never forgets mm-hmm. uh you're uh <laughs> around that magic age of uh, right. of 30 where people right. sometimes think they outgrow rock and roll right what what what, what do you have to say to people who, who i guess the song says it all but can rock you add a little flourish Forgets basically is is a call to arms to people my age to, yeah. that that if you want it it's still here you know you can come and see rock bands you know and uh it's not just something that the kids, the younger generation, you know, like the 16, 17-year-old kids can dig. You know, it's, 30-year-old people can get off on it, too. That's basically what that's all about. You know, my own peer group, I guess. <laughs> a call to my own people my age. And um, as far as Night Moves is concerned, it's, it is it is semi-autobiographical. The, the first two verses are right out of my life. I mean, that actually occurred, the, the whole first two verses. The remainder of it, is is not really about me. It's 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 um, it, it's the way I see a lot of people that I know. Uh, at 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 the moment, I'm a fairly content individual, you mm-hmm. know. And, and and the idea of night moves, the whole song, is uh, I, I've seen a lot of people who have, you know, for one reason or another, lost their passion, you know, that they had when they were teenagers, you know. Mm-hmm. And and the idea is. To try and not and and be try to maintain that you know try to try to remember those times, in a way that you, you can say well remember when I used to do this and enjoy it you know well I can still do it today I'm still the same person yeah and and the key line of course is when you just don't seem to have as much to lose, and and you know you can still take chances you can still step out and right you know what right. I mean you can still do it right yeah. you can you can. You you can take things seriously and have a good time instead of being jaded or whatever. Yeah. You Did know? you see the the uh, Saturday Night Live TV treatment that was done on on Night I Moves? I didn't see it. We were working that night. I heard about it. Uh huh. Yeah, it hooked up real well. I thought it I thought it came out real well. Let's spin Night Moves now. That's Bob Seeger in the Silver Bullet Band here at WMMS, and Bob's uh, going to hang around a couple more minutes and, and chat a little bit. We were talking earlier about the fact that you have not done any television. There have been a number of late-night rock shows on TV, and there have been a number of shows that sometimes have rock bands on them. How come you haven't done any TV, Bob? Well, we've been uh, we've been offered just about, you know, all of them. We, we've been offered Saturday Night, which I really wanted to do because I do like Saturday Night. I really admire the show. Yeah. But at the same time, you're talking about, uh, you know, you're going into NBC, 
and uh, you're going to play live, and you're going to have uh, Joe Nobbs at NBC at the <laughs> controls because they're not going to let our our English roadie who has been doing our mixing for four years, you know, sit at the NBC board. Yes, yes, slight and union problem there. I think really, <laughs> absolutely, and and this is what goes on in every major television show, and and from the bands that we know, the people we've talked to. The majority of, of what we hear from them is that uh, they're never really satisfied with what they eventually see. And, and here, especially. And here, Television people yeah. aren't very sound conscious. That's the thing, you know? Well, see and hear, really. You, you hear both. But I would say that's probably the the, the clincher, is, yeah, is yeah. the audio. You know, you're, you're dealing with a three-inch speaker. And it's, it's not like in a studio where you can take a lot of time to get it exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially a live show like what Saturday Night is. It's like one take. Right. And that's it. I just don't feel, to really sum it up, I, I don't feel rock and roll and television gen- in general mix very well. Do you think it's a broad sort of art form that should be played to the zillionth row, you know what I'm saying, and TV maybe is a little too intimate for Absolutely. it? Absolutely. That's really? it right on, the, right on the head. Yeah, that's a lot of people have said that. Right, because nobody goes to a concert and sees a guy one foot away, you know, yeah. or... Or sees a band five feet away, maybe a few in the front row, but for the most part, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's uh, even in a theater or whatever, you know, or even in a club, yeah. it's it's not the way you see it on TV. And people on that stage are not playing for a camera; they're not mm-hmm. professional entertainers. They're not working small, as they say. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, they aren't. And um, that coupled with the audio, I've just seen very very few bands and a lot of bands that I've really liked. I've seen on TV and said, "Hey, they shouldn't have done that." Yeah. They hurt themselves, yeah. you know. They, they, uh, and I hear people say, "Well, I saw the da 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 band, and God, they're one of my favorites." And I saw them on TV, and they were horrible, you know. Yeah. And um, we'll just go with the live performances for now. And what we'd like to do eventually, when we get the time, is uh, do our own taping under our own circumstances, make our own videotape of the band. And I think we'll do that one of these days. We'll we'll maybe cut. The show in, in the way that someone does a live album, we'll we'll do like ten shows, and we'll take out the various songs, mm-hmm. and we'll do them our way with five, six cameras. Take the best from all the shows and right. splice it. It's down. not even that expensive to do, you know, and and it actually costs as much to do one TV show. I mean, it doesn't cost the band that much, but you know, in the in cost, cost factor, yeah. the cost factor, whatever it is, uh, yeah. video, you can do it, uh, you know, remotely. Mm-hmm. And you can do it with a 16-track, and, and it, the point is you have your own control. Uh, I've got nothing against television at all, but I do want that control, and everybody in the band does, too. Right. There is such great potential with television, especially rock and roll on television, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, television is still run by those older folks who um, You're right. are graduates of radio, and all they think of is radio with pictures, you know, right. and it's a little more than that. Right. Uh, real quick before you split... What's next? What's coming up next? Do you have uh, the new album uh, on the way to being made, or what? i just scratching the surface now. I've, I've got a few titles, song titles and stuff, and I don't have an album title as yet. And, uh-huh. and when I hit that, when I hit the album title, then things will go pretty fast, I think, as far as writing it is concerned. Yeah. That's generally the way I work. Um, <clears throat> this summer, <clears throat> we were supposed to go to Europe in about three weeks, but... We set it back because I want to have a new album for October, mm-hmm. <clears throat> hopefully. And uh, in order to have a new album in October, I had to knock out a month in Europe yeah. to give me an extra month to write. And I think what we're just going to do is uh, one show a week. We're doing uh, like the festival 
uh, type deals. Yeah. <clears throat> we just did Denver with Fleetwood Mac, 62,000 people, and and we're going to do New Orleans with Fleetwood Mac, and we're going to do a, a play with some some groups that we've never seen because we don't get to see many groups. We play so much, and you know, headline our own as well. Mm-hmm. You know, but that's what we're going to do. Maybe 20 shows this summer, and that's it. And other than that, we're going to I'll, I'll be home writing, <clears throat> and eventually in the studio wherever we go. You know, or with if we do a producer or whatever, that'll all be determined by the material. Yeah. Well, listen, the best of luck, man. And I know you got to run and get down to Public Hall tonight. Bob is playing down with stars this evening at Public Hall, and we're glad that we finally got you into Cleveland after that cancellation, and mm-hmm. it was pushed up a couple of months. We're looking forward to seeing you tonight, man, and best of luck. You know, I'm looking forward to playing. All right, Bob. We'll see you later. Bye. All right, so that was Denny's interview with Bob Seeger and uh, another great one, some uh, punks from New York. Uh, you got a chance to talk to the Ramones. Tell me about this chat before we get to it here. Well, I, I always liked the Ramones. I thought they uh, were an important reminder that a tight little four-piece band playing nice and loud was a vital part of the art of rock and roll, which we seemed to get away from for a while during that period. Uh, Bowie was the other act, I thought, brought us back to the basics. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I can tell you is I found Joey and Johnny Ramone very bright, very focused. They knew exactly what they were doing, and they were very, very smart. Denny's conversation with the Ramones here on this bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzard. This is WMMS in Cleveland, and it is my pleasure to have Joey Ramone and Johnny Ramone of the Ramones as my special guests this evening here in the studios of MMS. Guys, welcome. Thank you for taking a, thank you for taking a couple of minutes to stop by. I always wanted to ask... Joey, I guess especially. The Ramones released their first album back in 76, before most people were hyped on uh, so-called punk rock. Now, shortly after it came out, major news magazines had stories on the punk movement sweeping America. It's going to be the next big thing, and then all the hype hit. The earliest bands, like you, lived through all of that in the beginning. And Now, how do you feel four years down the line after all of that hit? Well, we would, you know... When we first started, we were trying to achieve something. We were trying to change. We tr- actually we were trying to save rock and roll because it was uh, it was it was um, everything that rock and roll meant to us. Fun and rock was meant to be fun and exciting. The fun and excitement was totally drawn out, and mm-hmm. rock was becoming very heavily formulated and uh, totally away from the point. You know, Joey, so, were you repulsed by the movement at the time, which seemed to embrace bands like Yes? King Crimson, that kind of uh, over-ornamental rock, well, long we, pieces, lots of instrumentation. Well, that wasn't rock. It was They were mixing classical stuff and all, and, you know, there's room for those groups. Mm-hmm. There's just people, and people who like Yes uh, are not going to like us, even if, if, if uh, Yes ceases to exist. I mean, so it doesn't really matter, and there's room for everybody, and you need all different types of music, but you need some pure, high-energy uh, rock and roll. So, uh, I mean, I remember when King Crimson came out, I was a fan of King Crimson, too, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, it's not that we're down on bands like that. It's just, it's just, it's, it, it got to be where those groups were dominating everything, and, um, and nobody else had a chance, you know? And everybody and, would and come that's out with the sound like we'd be copies of those bands, and, you know, and, I mean, kids uh, out there should feel like they have a chance of doing it, that they could go out and buy a guitar and mm-hmm. start a rock and roll band. That's and when everybody is Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Yes, King Crimson, I don't think the kid, uh, kid out there would feel like he has a chance. Mm-hmm. 
That means you have to buy a guitar and you got to sit around and practice about 20 years until you're about as good as them. Not only that, but it's difficult sometimes to duplicate the sound that those bands made with all of the recording uh, oh, yeah, dubbing that they did right, and all right, of the right, custom-made, right, strange, right. Sure. exotic instruments. The synthesizers yeah. and all yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I mean, we even, when, when we thought about starting a band, uh, for the first few months, we didn't start a band. We kept feeling that we, all the groups have such massive equipment and everything that we can't afford that. And that stopped us for a few months. Then we decided, oh, well, let's, I think we could do what we want to do with small things. And mm -hmm. we went out and bought small amps and, started off like that how do you feel about certain people who were disappointed down the line by the band's road to ruin album you seem to diverse up and go beyond first gear so to speak with the band well and i remember a lot of people dug it and some other people said oh they've changed for the worse and i, I kind of we like the album. I mean, yeah. We think it's. Uh, yeah. We like them all equally the same. But uh, I, I seem to get the feeling that you seem to sense that there would be a bit of adverse reaction, even with the title "Road to Ruin." Well, you have to keep making changes, and you know you hope for the better. And because your fans will grow tired of it, you just put on fourteen fast songs every no, album. You have to grow, and uh, we think you, you know you try new ideas each album, and. We like Road to Ruin a lot, you know. And it's, I think just like, of... it's just another side of us, but you got to keep uh, progressing, and you can't get stagnant because, um, you know, we don't want, you know, it's it's as much as the band doesn't want to as as the um, public, you know. Someone will always have something, you know, feel negative about something that you do. I mean, you know, you just can't please everyone. Right, <laughs> and you can't take a forward step without losing a certain percentage of people who want you to remain exactly the same, same year yeah. after no. year. There's, there's always so many people like that, too, that say, uh, I wish you could do another album like your first or something like that. Or, and they, and they'd say, you know, they've said that about, you know, the Beatles and people like that, too, you know. like uh, Each time you buy a Beatle album, it would sound different, and sometimes I'd buy one and say, oh, I don't know if I like this. But then I go back, and uh, now especially I go back, and some of the things I remember not liking at the time, I find some of their best best work. You know? Sure, sure. <laughs> and, uh, you know. You have to allow for the jolt of that change, too. Yeah, and you get, before you pass judgment too quick, you have to look into it and listen to it a good amount of times. Let me ask both you guys something. There has been really no specific writing credit given on the album, it's always written by the Ramones. Now, certainly, uh, Joey or Johnny, there has to be a central force there in the writing someplace. Can you talk about that? Yeah, How we'll, tunes come together? We work. Um, we work from all. You know, you get you get different ideas from a thousand different, you know, ways, and you know, but we work on uh, different combinations. So it's not like uh, the writing is all done by one person, and it. It starts to sound that way after a while. It's um, I write and Dee writes and John writes, you know. So, you know, it, it works. You know, you, you come know? to rehearsal and you have a song or a part of a song, and you play it for everybody, and we'll you know, make changes, whatever we feel would be a good idea or a good part added to it, and uh, you know, you just put down everyone's name. Just and you know, we're <laughs> we're a unit. You know, we're all going yeah. for the same goal. You know, and it's um. And, you know, we're like a team. So if someone doesn't you know? feel bad if one of their songs gets left off, because it really doesn't make a difference, because it says all songs have been rather Ramones. Credit is, yeah. The credit is always given to the full band. Yeah, instead of someone getting stuck with having, it, you know, eight songs on a record and somebody else going and getting two or something. You know? uh, one tune on the new album, End of the Century, uh, hit my ears. 
and it integrates the title of the album in the the tune. Uh, do you remember Rock and Roll Radio? You say it's the end of the century and it's the end of the seventies. Why do you link the two? Well, it's not that far off as far as um, a musical aspect of the you know the end of the century. You know, and um, and the seventies were kind of like. Something was started. The spark was started. Now it's it's over. The end of the the seventies are over, and it's time to for to build. You know, because um, even within the last six months or so, uh, radio is total. We've we've turned radio around. The new music and um, and the, and the radio is now being heavily dominated by the newer bands, whereas. A year ago, it was still foreign and total and people mm-hmm. like that. And a lot of it, I think, too, is that the audience is coming around to some of the newer sounding oh, yeah, music. Yeah. It took them a while oh, to yeah. get used to it as well. Right, right. Yeah, at first, when it first came out, when us, the Sex Pistols, came out, it was kind of extreme. And uh, it was too radical of a change for people to get, adjust to because they were so conditioned into listening to the other stuff. Mm-hmm. But now, that's over the years, they finally accept that, you know, New Wave is legitimate and there's you know some real good things going on and uh a lot of young kids are tired of listening to what their older brothers and parents have had to listen to and they want they're really into new wave a lot of young kids johnny how do you feel about uh, that term new wave do you like it do you like being pigeonholed no i mean it's just a you know it's a silly term i mean you just use it because everyone uses it <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but uh it's just a term i mean you know, we're a rock and roll band and uh New wave has been a term for a long time. It was a film term, whatever, in the fifties, sure. and uh, you know, you know. I suppose uh, you know. There's always been terms. There was the Mersey sound and acid rock, and uh, you know, it's always been terms. Hundreds know. of other titles yeah. too. But heavy I, metal and yeah, yeah. But um, you know, with, a while ago, everything became uh, termed as rock and roll, and a lot of that stuff wasn't rock and roll, like Linda Ronstadt and people like that. You know, they they term uh, Ted Nugent rock and roll and Linda Ronstadt rock and roll at the same time. You know, so, so somebody has to. They all can't be rock and roll. They can't be rock and roll in Kansas and Sticks be rock and roll and Linda Ronstadt be rock and roll. Yeah. I mean, something's got to be. They have to change some of the terms you know so they call the category yeah yeah. well some of the acts that you mentioned uh fall under that giant uh, umbrella called rock not rock and roll but Uh, rock rock, which is anything and everything (laughs) that hits an under 30 audience which is so broad and diverse it doesn't mean anything and i'm very glad to see the term rock and roll coming back into popularity because that's no mistaking what that stuff is yeah right and it's great to uh, to hear it coming back and hearing the audience now digging uh, uh, a little more basic records, you know. Let me ask you a bit about Roger Corman. He's uh, uh, the kind of fellow who uh, makes you love sitting home on a Saturday afternoon watching some UHF station playing his old movies from the early 60s. What was it like working with Roger well, Corman? Well, we didn't get to meet Roger Corman. Really? No, we didn't see him the whole time. He doesn't even, you know... He just sits up in his mansion somewhere, I guess. What was his hand in the in the film? Then uh, he he produced it's his it. company, and right, and he's the executive producer, which he hires a producer to make sure it comes in on the budget. Uh, and the director Alan Arkish works for worked at the time for Roger Corman. Roger Corman hires these directors and gets them to do things, you know, for very little money, just for the opportunity to direct something, you know. He's always done that in the past. He's always had great people working for him. I mean, he's had, you know, Jack Nicholson got a start with Roger Corman and uh, Francis Ford Coppola. And there's been so many people. 
Um, we we decided to do the film because we knew it was Roger Corman's company, and you know Roger Corman's made all these great teenage films ever since the mid fifties. Uh, just knew it'd always be a a famous cult film. And we're talking about the movie Rock and Roll High School, and here now is the title tune from the film. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. We're WMMS in Cleveland. There you have the title tune from the movie Rock and Roll High School, and I'm sitting in between Joey Ramone and Johnny Ramone here at WMMS, and they're playing tonight up at the Cleveland Agora with one of the finest uh, local bands opening up, the Wild Giraffes. I know you're going to enjoy them. Let me uh, ask you more about the film business. Are we going to see you guys in more films? We don't know. I mean, if somebody offers us something that sounds good, we'll do it. But uh, We're waiting for Hitchcock to offer us a part. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, our main concern is just to get out there and keep playing. Let me uh, ask you a bit about Phil Spector. There's no avoiding uh, a few questions about Spector. Are you happy with the results of the album? Oh, I love it. I think it's great. You know, I'm really happy the way it turned out. You know? What was it like working with, with Phil? Was he like Roger Corman, where he was at arm's length of the production? Or no, no, we were he good friends with totally him. Totally involved with everything, you know. Yeah. Was he aware of the Ramones right from yeah, the start? Yeah, he's uh, always, always, he follows everything. He's aware of everybody, and yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. watching you right now. Right, right, right. <laughs> but uh, you know, he really follows music. And he knows everything that's going on. I was very surprised. We met him like two years ago out in California. And he came up to us and started talking to us about, you know, you want to make a, a great record, and, you know. And uh, and we were really surprised that he knew all about us and where our career was. He knew, he knew everything about us, our sales and everything. Yeah, our sales and everything. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and each time we'd go out there, we would talk to him. And uh, we wanted to be sure that he understood what we were all about. So he made the first approach to yeah, you. Yeah, he wanted to do uh, Rock the Russia album, and then he wanted to do the Road to Ruin album. And finally, uh, what held him up on the Rock to Russia album? Well, we didn't want to j- rush into nothing, you know, because in the past we had more or less been doing the albums ourselves and having complete control, and we didn't want to rush into something where somebody would take over and try to change what the Ramones are about. Mm-hmm. And once we saw that he was looking for the same goal that we were, and that he understood us and didn't really want to change anything, just to bring out things that we weren't putting in. Whose idea was it to do Baby I Love You and have that specter arrangement behind? Uh, the group's ideas. Yeah. Uh, well, it was our idea to do the song, and we told him to do it with it, whatever he wanted. You know. Did you feel like you wanted to do one old specter tune? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we yeah. always do one oldie every album, and since we were doing one with Phil, you know, we were... You know, we always we always thought about doing his songs, one of his songs anyway in the past. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. It's just great doing his song and having him produce it too, you know. Are you going to be using uh, Phil Spector again for the next Possibly. recording? We don't know, we haven't decided yet. He wants to do another one. Yeah. What's uh, 
in the future for the Ramones? You're going to be on television more. I know that's a a pretty <laughs> rare. Trying to. Know, uh, it's a pretty rare experience. <laughs> but uh, I we don't know. We don't Has know. Has Don Kirshner called you up yet, or uh, uh, or any of those uh, Bert Sugarman or any of those people who run the big big shows where. Uh, not that we know we of. We did do Don Kirshner <laughs> a few years ago, but um, most of those shows are just lame and bad, you know. Yeah, and so few rock, real rock yeah, shows. I mean, you gotta get stuck on the show. And who's who watched Midnight Special anymore? It's all full of disco artists. Yeah, and Don uh, Kirshner's disco concert, right? Exactly. And uh, <laughs> I saw one Midnight Special a few weeks ago. It was all Doc Severinsen. Doc Severinsen and. It's ridiculous. It like, yeah, you know, yeah. An hour so. at Doc Severinsen. Is know. it the is the problem that they're unaware of what rockers want, or is it that they it's just totally, can't get people to? All play they care the about show. is ratings. I think all they right. care about is ratings, and they feel that that's the safe way of doing things. You that's know? why and, it's all disco. You know, if they cared, they do something about it. You know. Yeah. Um, Even American Bandstand is getting better now. You know, but uh, I can't really <laughs> talk about that show. <laughs> The also the the problem with uh, especially Midnight Special and uh, Kirshner's show is that they're shot like television shows. If I'm not mistaken, in other words, if there is a electronic problem in the television picture, or if they didn't particularly like that shot, they'll open the PA and go cut, yeah. and you'll have right, to start right, your right. tune again. Well, we did Don Kirshner about uh, three years ago or so, and we got to play. We just Played the full set and no problems and uh, I did cut it a couple of times. I remember we well, did Sheen about three times or something like that. We just Where came back from a six-week tour of Europe in which we did a lot of TV there, like two TV shows in each the country. They only have like one one station in each country, and you know. <laughs> government owned. And most of we did real well over there. We had a bunch of hit singles in each of the countries. One in England, Baby I Love You was a top ten hit there, and Rock and Roll High School was a top ten hit in Holland and Belgium. How do you feel about looking at your, especially your singles, high on the charts in Europe and in America? You've still yes. yet to springboard to that plateau. It's weird because you don't really feel like that really counts because all that counts is America. I mean, but it's nice to have it though, you know. Sure but, is. <laughs> well, it's like a, a, a lot of people get in the back door that way. Yeah, you feel sometimes it might reflect somehow and go back t towards America, you know. Yeah, Joe, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does because. Uh, a lot of people have had hits there, and now they're doing better, you know. But it's like uh, two, dif two different worlds, the cultures of uh, Europe and England and, you know, America. Doesn't your live act sell you more in England than it does in the States? Because the States is so big, and you have to play so many dates. Whereas in England, you can play eight dates, ten dates, and cover many people. Oh, yeah, you cover the whole country. We just, we just came back, we just did 22 cities in England, so we covered, I mean, every... <laughs> every every place there was, you know. Yeah. But do you, do you find that that's a problem in the states? Uh, the fact that it takes so long to play out live, so many places to cover. Well, the it's whole good country. too. It's also an advantage because you can just keep touring, which is, you know, good in a way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're stuck in England, you go on a tour for a month, and that's it. You cover the whole place. There's nothing else left for you to do. What about the? Uh technology of the future everybody's talking about the video disc are we going to see a ramones video disc i don't know not not yet <laughs> well, we, we rather you know present ourselves live than uh do i don't see how you can uh, uh, get really everything onto a video disc it's not the same you know it's, it's so like, far uh, away yet so fabricated too you know talking about fabrication stuff and uh, it's like uh you can't see a band on a disc and uh, and that's how they're gonna be you know 
unless um unless that's the kind of band they are anyway you know but you know they could never put us on a disc and uh, that would be us you know a true presentation of the band you know so the ramones emphasis will still be the live performance in the immediate yeah, future a very long time before really video discs really get rolling if ever i don't, I don't think they'll ever get rolling <laughs> Yeah. Not for a good long time, anyway. Yeah, because I mean, you have to. It's like the record thing. You have to sell so many copies of a video disc to make it worth pressing, and uh, and then how many people are going to have machines? I mean, that means everyone has to have a machine, and it's just a lot of drawbacks. It'll take a while. Yeah, I, I have a mixed feeling about it. On one hand, I'd like to see any technological breakthrough. On the other hand, I don't like to see things reduced to a few inches on a piece of tape or on a disc. You want to see a three-dimensional band playing and hearing and listening yeah, to sure, three-dimensional sure. music. Yeah. Well, I feel that bass in your stomach, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, isn't that amazing? That's one thing they've never really been able to record properly, have they? The That's bass right. drum and the, the bass guitar. They can kind of get close in a recording, but there's nothing like sitting in front oh, of a lose. bass drum and hearing that song. Things lose so much just going from the master tapes just onto the vinyl. You know, you really can't even get what you had on the tape onto the vinyl, you know, because the, the, the needle will hop, you know? <laughs> right. So, like, uh, I know, you can't really get it all on a record even, but that's life. <laughs> you do the best you can. Yeah. In the meantime, tonight, the Ramones are playing in the flesh, in three dimensions, tonight, yeah, right, up right. at the Cleveland Agora. So come on down and enjoy them. And it's been my pleasure, Joey and Johnny. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. We'll see you guys Thanks. tonight and keep on rocking. All right, so when we come back, we'll have some final reflections on the series with Denny and John. It's next on this bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzard. The Pedals to the Metal on MMS. The Domino Theory, the story of a major sugar company out to get their main competition, Saccharin, banned from the market so they'll have it all themselves. Sweet deal, huh? John Wayne, as a diabetic president, doesn't agree. This I won't do. Will not? I will not. But in the end, Wayne is re-elected, and some people don't like it. Let's go hang ourselves, and then get roaring drunk. The Domino Theory. Trust no one. Not your boss. Not your wife. Not even your local policeman. The Domino Theory. Trust no one. No one. Start soon at No the... one. Start soon at No the... one. Start soon at No one. God. Start soon at the Rocks Off, Humpty Dump, Hideodrome, and the cinemas 9 and 10 in the Wasteland Shopping Center. You're, You're listening, listening to Saturday Night Stone on WMMS Cleveland. All right, so guys, we're wrapping up the series, and we'll start with uh, you, John. First, in about uh, 30 seconds, if you can think about your one memory that you wish you could go back and experience WMMS in a sentence or two, what would that be? If you could go back in time, what would it be? Boy, that, that is, that's a tough one uh, because so many of the experiences, even the bad experiences are good because we, we, we learned from our mistakes and uh, we, we relished our achievements. I just wish we could have gone on a little longer. Uh, but as far as, uh, there is no... There was no one time because as soon as you thought that you hit that zenith, there was there was a greater opportunity ahead. What about you, Denny? Bruce Springsteen at the Agora, nineteen seventy-eight. Yeah. 
to see a fully mature act like that in a small club was absolutely electrifying. I think most critics agree that it was uh, the band's one of their yeah. greatest performances, if not their greatest I think I say, club performance. I say it was their greatest, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we got it on tape. That's fantastic. May I say two things before we close? Go right ahead. As important as the jocks were, and as important as John's direction was, and a fine sales crew we had, and terrific engineering, props have to go to David Helton, whose uh, buzzard illustrations gave the station a visual signature mm -hmm. that was critical to our success. I don't think we would have been quite as successful without David's buzzard creation. And uh, on a personal level, I met so many people at the station who became lifelong friends, and that's a pretty good takeaway. Truly, guys, uh, from me and Kevin, from all of us at Westler Media, thank you for giving us the opportunity to uh, do what we did uh, for the story of WMMS. Thank you for letting thank us you. tell the story. WMMS. J.D. Snotgrass knows there's nothing finer than getting into someone's pants and finding they're wearing a pair of denim underwear. So right now, we're having a sale on these sensual shorts. If you buy 99 pairs at the regular price of $10 each, you get the 100th pair for one cent less. They come in all sizes and all colors for dudes and chicks. So if you can't get into anyone else's, get your own denim underwear. Buy 99 pairs at the regular price at $10 each, get the 100th pair for one cent less. At our house, J.D. Snotgrass. More shell shock rock from WMMS. And welcome back to this bonus episode of the Wrath of Buzzard. And we have a special surprise, special treat here. Alex Bevan, welcome to this bonus episode of the Wrath of the Buzzard. We're happy you're here. Well, hey now, I'm good. I'm, I'm so glad to be here under the buzzard's wing one more time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. So in the uh, at, at the end of every episode, you were kind enough to let us use your track, uh, Cruising with the Buzzard, uh, which is uh, a fun, great track. And there's a lot of great kind of history in the lyrics of those songs. But obviously, in order to create a song like that, um, you had to have had a relationship that began with the radio station. So how did you come to be connected with WMMS? When WMMS was just a little baby MMS, uh, I was like one of the local folkies, and it was really easy to invite me into uh, the other FM station. And uh, as the other FM station got bigger and more corporate, the guys uh, that, that I knew— uh, in radio were, uh, you know, talking about these upstarts at uh, WMMS. And uh, they had studios in the old WHK auditorium. Uh, I was familiar with that that place and with WHK. And so I started going there and getting to know some of the people, uh, uh, you know, uh, Billy Bass and uh, uh, David Sparrow and Joyce Halassa. Uh, and you know they they were they were very welcoming, and since I had a little bit of vinyl at that point, uh, they played. Uh, I think they played my record once, but <laughs> they invited me to come in, you know, and do things with this old guitar. And so you know that's that's kind of where it started, where you could walk into a studio, and uh, you could create some live content, which at the time. Uh, was unheard of because, you know, um, 
FM radio it was the Wild West in those days. And uh, the, the incredible thing about WMMS was that it was a cross between corporate radio and college radio. And so um, it was exciting. And uh, it, 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 that's how it started to become the soundtrack of the Cleveland area, is that uh, they could bring in all this fresh music that nobody would ever heard. And you'd go, hey, what is that? That's cool. we got to find it. And they'd tell you where to find it, you know, at the different places like, you know, Record Revolution, you know. Um, it was just, uh, I, I kind of got to know those guys organically. And when they started the Coffee Break concerts, I was going like, yeah, well, I'll try that, you know. So, um, you know, it's like... I got my mind on summertime, cruising with the buzzer. Sunshine, blue skies, cruising with the buzzer. Tell your neighbors, tell your friends, this is where the summer never ends. But da 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 Got a place to start 101 and the buzzard's heart So with the Ability to um, Play live on the radio People like John Gorman And uh, Denny Sanders Realized that there was a way to bring the record Companies in and have Performers play that And it was something nobody else was doing so when WMS said, hey, you want to try a Coffee Break concert, or Jeff Kinsbach said, hey, come on down to the morning show, uh, play us a song or two, what are you working on? You know, I, I, I go, yeah, what a gift. You know, and as WMS began to uh, pick up a head of steam, we, I think we were all amazed because it was, uh, I, I hate to use the cliche, the perfect storm. There's got to be a better metaphor than that. But it was, uh, it was the perfect party, you know, because we'd be in our cars and we'd hear something. We were always tuned in. It was our common language and it was all about the music. It was an entirely different culture and it was, it was magic because we were all discovering the same thing, which is ourselves through music. It was one last chance garage sale on some familiar road I saw the sign pulled on in and why, I do not know But there upon the table where the other hands played cards I saw that old time RCA just sitting in the yard The wood was stained with water and the numbers all showed fade Speaker cone was torn and worn from where the music played And the power cord was tangled <laughs> Oh, the insulation thin A sticker said five dollars So I asked to plug it in 
dreams came from that radio Oh, the station's gone the way of tools And old guitars Little knobs that fit your hand Could dial in some country band That broadcast through the static to the stars Well, the set began to warm up Heard gentle hum Felt a catch inside my throat From where the memories come A little burst and crackle Oh, the tuner turned to find a station I Somewhere long ago Across my life and time Oh, how the music filled my heart And in that song I felt myself a child again With friends who now are gone When the moment passed I felt more than alive I turned the volume to the left And I give the man a five There was no negotiation <laughs> I did not offer three Sometimes it's best to pay the price For what your dreams might Oh, the station's gone the way of tubes and old guitars Little knobs that fit your hand could dial in Some country band that broadcast through the static to the stars Broadcast through the static to the stars That says it all. The Wrath of the Buzzard. WMMS Cleveland. Thanks to everyone who made this series possible, and thank you for listening to Profile Season 2 The Wrath of the Buzzard.
And I'm Joe, and, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading!